Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Out front next, Trump lashes out, taking the witness stand in his own fraud trial. Out front legal analyst Ryan Goodman is here along with Amarosa Manigault Newman. Plus, strikes on Gaza lighting up the sky tonight, while thousands of miles away, Vladimir Putin is embracing Hamas, despite his own citizens killed and kidnapped by the militant group. So what role is Putin playing? And James Carville is out front, even though his party wants to shut him up. How come? Let's go out front. And good evening. I'm Aaron Burnett. Out front tonight, showdown in court, Trump versus the judge, the former president taking the stand for nearly four hours in his New York civil fraud trial today. Going after the judge, losing his temper. At one point, the judge saying to Trump's attorneys, quote, can you control your witness? While Trump complained, the judge was, quote, very hostile, even saying to the judge, it's a terrible thing you've done. You believe this political hack back there, and that's unfortunate. Trump left the court tonight, though, projecting confidence. I think it went very well. I think you were there and you listened. See what scam this is. This is a case that should have never been brought. It's a case that should be dismissed immediately. The fraud was on behalf of the court. All right. Well, when Trump did actually focus on the issue at hand, the issue at the core of this, he admitted about the financial documents at the center of this case. And I want to quote him because this is what he actually said today on the stand. I would look at them. I would see them. And I would maybe on occasion have some suggestions. It's very interesting that he would say such a thing uh, because he could have said he had nothing to do with it and that would be consistent with what his son said. But he actually said, right, that he'd offered suggestions. In fact, he appears to be saying exactly what Michael Cohen said to me after he testified in this trial. Trump speaks like a mob boss. What he does is he says, you know, I'm actually not worth $5 billion. I'm worth six. Why don't you guys go and figure it out? And you knew what that meant. So you're saying he didn't say, Michael, go inflate my assets. What he said was, hey, Michael, my, my, my net worth is $6 billion. Go figure it out. He directed us in order to do it. The only way, of course, to do it is to increase the value of the assets in that statement of financial condition. Amazing. Trump seems to be saying that all of that is what happened. I mean, the big question tonight, of course, is what did Trump do in that courtroom today? What did he accomplish and for whom? I mean, keep in mind, Trump is not new to a witness stand. An AP tally has Trump testifying in court at least eight trials since 1986. And even in this courtroom, of course, Trump has spent a lot of time in there. This was his eighth day attending this trial so far. So he's watched the judge. He's watched the prosecutors. God knows he's watched the clerk. And while Trump tried to help himself politically today, it is not clear whether his statements hurt him legally. Paula Reed is outside the courthouse. Paula, Trump's team, of course, praising Trump's performance, his attorney calling it brilliant. Um, okay, cut to it. I mean, as you see it and you've been reporting on this, you've been there. Did he help his case? 
Well, he might have helped his case in the court of public opinion with his supporters. He used his time on the witness stand to repeatedly attack the attorney general, to attack the judge, and insist that he was the target of political bias. But in his often long-winded answers, he provided a lot of information that will likely hurt his case. I think it went very well. Former President Donald Trump leaving court after testifying in an attempt to defend his real estate business. It's a scam, and this is a case that should have never been brought. During nearly four hours on the stand, Trump continuously clashed with Judge Arthur and Gran. I'm sure the judge will rule against me because he always rules against me. The judge responding, you can attack me, you can do whatever you want, but answer the question. In another testy exchange, the judge had to instruct defense attorney Chris Kyes to control your client, adding this is not a political rally. We are here to hear him answer questions, and most of the time he's not, the judge said and then threatened to remove Trump from the stand. On the financial statements at the heart of the case, Trump said, I would look at them, I would see them, and I would maybe on occasion have some suggestions. And on his role in preparing the statements, I accepted it. Other people did it, but I didn't say make it higher or make it lower, he said. When asked if he maintained accurate records from August 2014 going forward, Trump said, I hope so. I didn't keep them myself. Trump was also questioned about the valuation of his assets, including his Trump Tower apartment, which financial statements show a more than $200 million value drop in one year. I thought the apartment was high, he said, adding, we changed it, and saying different property assets were both high and low. Trump has long claimed his Florida Mar-a-Lago property was undervalued, saying today it is worth $1 to $1.5 billion. The numbers are much greater than on the financial statement. But the judge cited a Florida tax appraisal valuing the property at just $18 million in his decision, finding Trump, his adult sons, and his company committed persistent and repeated fraud. In court, Trump said, I thought Mar-a-Lago was very underestimated, but I didn't do anything about it. Trump's conduct has become a flashpoint in this case. You have a racist attorney general who made some terrible statements. Even before he took the stand, Trump took aim at New York Attorney General Letitia James, later calling her a political hack in court. The only thing that matters are the facts and the numbers. And numbers, my friends, don't lie. And the courthouse behind me is closed tomorrow for Election Day. But then on Wednesday, Ivanka Trump is expected to be called to the witness stand. Now, she has tried several different ways of getting out of the appearance, but the court rejected all of those attempts. And while she's no longer a defendant in this case, she will be the third of Trump's children to testify. Aaron. All right, Paula, thank you very much outside that courthouse. And I want to go now to Eric Larson. He was in the courtroom today, of course, as he's been so many days. He's a legal reporter for Bloomberg News. He's covered Trump's trials and business extensively. Ryan Goodman also with us, the co-editor-in-chief of Just Security, former special counsel at the DOD. So, Eric, you were there today. Take us inside that room. 
Well, there was a, a lot of anticipation, of course, as Trump was entering the courtroom. He was flanked by his lawyers and Secret Service, and he walked very slowly, had a sullen look on his face. You know, it's kind of hunched over as he got on the witness stand to be sworn in. And it, it started out fairly slowly. He was answering the questions succinctly. It, it went on like that for a few minutes, but then it kind of just went off the rails after that. I think it's safe to say, as was mentioned, the judge at one point threatened to throw him off the witness stand. So um, once that happens, you've got a problem going on with the witness. Uh, the defense team was asked by the judge, maybe you need to take some, some time and talk about how to uh, keep Trump in line with the rules. And his lawyer said, you know, he's the former president of the United States, maybe the future president. He knows how the rules work. And the judge shot back, well, he's not following them. So it, it got pretty tense. And, and, and as Paula was describing it, long and rambling. At, at many points, it sounds like he wasn't answering the question, but he was talking. Right. That was what got the judge uh, a little upset. And uh, it, it, actually, the attorney general's office apparently decided at some point to let him continue to give these rambling answers because about halfway through the day, they stopped trying to stop him and just let him finish his train of thought for the most part. And uh, at one point, the lawyer for the attorney general said that it was actually helping their case to, to hear all of this additional commentary mm-hmm. from uh, Trump. So we'll see where that goes. And, and to that point... Uh- I would look at them, I would see them, and I would maybe on occasion have some suggestions. I mean, it's almost like he sounds like Michael Cohen. I mean, it, it, it seems to make that case. That's in, in one of those instances, of course, where he was just, he was filling the air. So what is it all about, to? I do think that this is very helpful to the prosecutors. They're getting a lot of what they want. Uh, they don't even need all of this, but he's saying things like that. He's definitely kind of boasting about his knowledge of the assets, which is not a good thing at a certain level, because he's also saying that he does, in fact, tell his subordinates whether or not to increase or decrease the evaluation of some of the assets, because he thinks some of them are too high. And then at the end of the day, which maybe he's getting tired in a certain sense, because they actually start to ask him, well, are you actually signing these documents and submitting them to the banks in order to induce the banks to give you these loans? And the answer is affirmatively. And it was even a little bit risky for the prosecutors to be asking that question, but to get that as the answer... That's basically what they need, which is about his intent, his knowledge, and his purpose. Right, and that he actually did it, right? You, right. Put, your, you put your name on there. Um, so, Eric, interestingly, Trump's attorneys did not cross-examine him today. How right. come? Uh, the idea is that when the defense starts its, its case on Monday, we're going to have a whole new set of witnesses. They decided to hold off putting, uh, you know, examining him until they're able to ask him the direct questions as part of the defense case. So they'll be able to present friendlier questions, questions that put him in a better light, and then it will be up to the state to do the cross-examination. But for now, this keeps him off the stand a little bit longer, you know, quick, makes it go a little faster. I'm just looking at at when we were talking there with Paula, his attorney called Trump's performance brilliant today. So we could see along those lines. I'm thinking back to uh, uh, Mr. Jackson when he said, you know, he could live to 100. But, you know, questions along the lines of that. Exactly. They'll be able to ask him, for example, you know, detailed questions about his business acumen and and, uh, all of the... I think at one point he said that he was planning on bringing in trophies and plaques that he had received from banks for the great deals that they had done with him. Not exactly oh. sure what, what he was referring to there, but he said that they I think I actually in. know. Okay. <laughs> I, I have some of those from, from briefly. You know, at the end of a deal, you get a little plaque, a little lucite. Right thing, and it says you were part of a deal. They're not awards. Oh, <laughs> They're, they're just awards. a statement that the deal happened and that there were, you know, 
banks in charge of them. I mean, I'm sure you, yeah. you know, as lawyers, lawyers get them, the bankers get them. They're not prizes. <laughs> <Well>. um, <laughs> but I bet you that's what he's talking about. Um, so, so, Ryan, Trump did a lot of attacking. Judge, AG, you know, we heard some mm-hmm. of the reporting there. At one point, Trump brought up the judge's decision before the trial started find, you know, that the judge had found Trump or liable for fraud, right? That this has already been found. This is not a jury trial, right? This is a damages trial to be determined by the judge. Trump says about the judge, quote, he called me a fraud and he didn't know anything about me. And the judge responded, read my opinion, perhaps, or for the first time, right? Because it was all very much laid out there, right? It wasn't personally pejorative. It was based upon numbers. Right. Trump says, I think it's fraudulent the decision. The fraud is on the court, not on me. Could Trump's sparring though with the judge have helped him? It could have. I don't think it ended up helping him. I think he might have even been strategic in trying to goad the judge into overstepping Mm -hmm. his judicial responsibilities. And he came kind of close. Uh, As Eric mentioned, if the judge had, in fact, said, end of story, I don't want you to be a witness anymore, I'm going to just make an adverse finding against you, then maybe it would have had something to go on as an appeal. Or if the judge had actually said, which he seemed to intimate at some point, that he would not even entertain the motion for a mistrial— that would have been overstepping it. And he seemed to be emotional on his own end as the judge. Mm. That might have worked to his favor, but it didn't seem to materialize. And there was a, a mistrial. How did that play out? Mistrial motions. Right, right. The, the defense has said that on Thursday they'll make a, a, a motion for a mistrial based on this argument that the judge's principal law clerk who sits next to him during the trial um, has been inappropriate and biased, and they have some various allegations. I think they may be planning on making against her. At one point, Trump's lawyer, Alina Haba, complained that she was rolling her eyes, and they've complained repeatedly about her passing notes to the judge, which the judge has said is completely normal and is total right right during a trial to receive this kind of advice from his law clerk. But the defense team has really zeroed in on this clerk and suggested that they're going to make her, you know, central to their motion Mm. for a mistrial, which, you know, is not uncommon after a trial uh, wraps up, but they're usually long shot attempts. And I'm not sure how this one will play out, but it should be interesting to read. Long shot at best. At yeah, best. At best. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure what audience they're playing to, but it's, it's, I wouldn't hang anything on that if I were Trump. All right. Thank you both very much. And next, Trump questioned about his infamous penthouse in Trump Tower. This is one of the crucial uh, assets that had been, at one point, uh, inflated by several hundred million dollars. Did he vastly inflate that value? The former Apprentice contestant and Trump White House aide Amarosa Manigault Newman is next. By the way, she's been there. Many times, and Vladimir Putin siding with Hamas, Russia hosting the group's leaders in Moscow, even as they have killed and kidnapped Russians. So what is Putin doing? Plus an exclusive dispatch from our journalist, Ibrahim Dahman. You know him, and now he's just out of Gaza with his two young sons and his pregnant wife, but he'll tell you why he still does not feel safe. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. All right, breaking news. Former President Donald Trump fiercely defending his business and his wealth as he testified in the New York fraud trial threatening his real estate empire and his entire business. Trump said his net worth is, quote, far greater than the $2.5 billion he was required to maintain to keep his loans. Trump also took time boasting about his real estate portfolio, including his golf course in Scotland. About this one, that's actually very interesting. He said, quote, I think it's the greatest golf course ever built. It's one of the greatest pieces of land I've ever seen. Well, the judge was uh, not amused with Trump's answer on that. He called it rambling and repetitive, as, as we have told you. Uh, Trump did go on and on in his answers as the day went on, four hours on the stand. Out front now, Omarosa Manigault-Newman. She was a contestant on The Apprentice, went on to work on Trump's 2016 campaign and to serve in the Trump White House. She's author of the book Unhinged, an insider's account of the Trump White House. Omarosa, you have known him, therefore, in many stages of his uh, career and his you know, shift yes. from, from business person to, to president. So Trump clashed with the judge repeatedly today. You heard Eric, who was in the room, describing it. Obviously, you know Trump well. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that, that as, as Eric described it, started off, um, you know, fine, short answers, and then very quickly turned into something quite confrontational, very long answers? Do you think this was deliberate? It was a strategy on Trump's part? Or did he, do you think, possibly just lose his sort of control and temper? Aaron, thanks for having me. I've known Donald for almost 20 years, and I can tell you that that was not strategy. It's simply this. Donald Trump can't help himself. Even facing this huge, huge fine, possibly $250 million, he cannot help himself. And so the folks who are saying that this was strategic, it's not strategy. Donald Trump is frustrated, and he's ticked off, and he's lashing out. That's what you're seeing in the courtroom. Hmm. So, okay, he acknowledged on the stand today, and this was very interesting, I thought, Amarosa, that he did play a role in documents stating the value of his properties, right? <laughs> Didn't need to do that. It wasn't actually something specific, uh, but, but he did. Uh, and he came out and said that. Um, he said he was probably involved in changing the value of his penthouse property on Fifth Avenue, um, which, of course, the New York <laughs> Attorney General says financial statements provided by the Trump Organization show that that value changed from $80 million in 2011 to $327 million uh, four years later. Uh, obviously, an incredible surge. Um, so, so you've been there. You've been there in that actual uh, apartment, um, apartment, whatever you might, might call it, penthouse. Do you have any doubt that Trump himself was involved in the valuing of that asset? Well, we have to take Donald at his own words. If he says he helped fudge those numbers, then he certainly did. But when we listen to Michael Cohen, who walked us through this process, starting when he was testifying in front of Congress. And then, of course, when he was just on the stand there, mm -hmm. they knew that Donald Trump wanted to appear wealthier than he was, more affluent, and he wanted to stay on the important list, the Forbes list. So he's willing to do whatever he needed to do. Donald Trump can't help himself. And so if they just let him keep talking, Donald will dig a hole for himself. And that's certainly what he did today on stand. And Amros, it's interesting that penthouse, we were just looking at footage of you inside um, and, and others uh, during your oh. time on The Apprentice. Yes. <laughs> but but Trump had tried to say, yes. oh, well, part of the reason that I that the value changed from 80 to 327 million, uh, that, that he actually changed the square footage 
that that's what uh, the attorney general says, that the square footage changed from 10,000 to 30,000 square feet. I mean, a tripling in your estimated square footage. Uh, <laughs> it's absolutely impossible. You'll recall that we actually lived in Trump Tower while we were shooting The Apprentice. Um, and it's very difficult to adjust or, or make or enlarge uh, the space in there. Although when you watch us on television, it looks larger than what it is. I've been in that penthouse. I, I will tell you the only thing he could do is take over the fourth floor or the fifth floor below him. I don't believe that Donald Trump even believed what he was saying. And so it is certainly fraud. So when Trump was asked about the 2021 financial statements that, that Judge Engron has specifically deemed fraudulent, he testified, Amorosa, quote, I was so busy in the White House, my threshold was China, Russia, and keeping our country safe. Um, of course, uh, you know, in 2021, he did leave office. Um, and these are the 2021 financial statements. Mm -hmm. Based on your experience in the Trump White House, what do you think of that defense, though? I think it's the weakest defense he could have asserted. You'll recall that Donald Trump, uh, because of his lack of attention span, we had to create this thing called executive time, which means that we gave him blocks of time, hours of time, two, three hours, so that he could go up in the residence and watch television or, you know, play on toys or, you know, fudge numbers. I don't know. But Donald Trump had ample amount of time to communicate with those who were still in charge of his business. And he did so quite frequently. His sons would come visit the White House. Donald Trump, to assert that he was so incredibly busy when he absolutely hated his briefings, he hated essential meetings, and he hated the role of presidency. He just liked the stature, but not the responsibilities. That defense is weak and it will fail. You've spent time, obviously, around the Trump family. You mentioned his sons. Uh, you know them. And, of course, you know Ivanka Trump mm -hmm. as well. They all appeared on The Apprentice and on the campaign trail, and you, you, you saw them many times. Ivanka Trump is expected to be the next yes. and last witness to be called in this trial. She will be called on Wednesday. She's not a defendant, but that is only because of the statute of limitations. So do you think, Amorosa, that Donald Trump should be worried about her testimony or not? I think he should be kind of concerned. She is very much like him. I think her testimony is the testimony I'm most interested in because she is very strategic in terms of rehabbing her image, trying to get back into, you know, civilized society and trying to make her way back into Hollywood. Um, and so the things that she say could impact her ambitions of being accepted again in the circles that she used to run in. She will certainly plead the fifth over and over again. But when it comes to saving her skin, she's very much like her dad. Uh, I don't doubt that she'll throw him under the bus just as quickly as he will throw her under the bus, back it up and run over her again. That's just the way this family is wired. All right, Amarosa, thank you very much. I appreciate your time tonight. And next, Thanks the breaking news. Thank you. And we've got some new strikes in Gaza just caught on our cameras to uh, show you here what's happening there. This tragedy continues. It comes as Vladimir Putin from thousands of miles away is watching every move. My next guest says Putin is the real winner of the Israel-Hamas war, and he'll explain. And our journalist, Ibrahim Dachman, and his family did make it out of Gaza. The horrors of the war are still with them. His exclusive dispatch next. Breaking news, new explosions rocking Gaza tonight as Israel reports major gains against Hamas. Israel announcing it's destroyed 450 Hamas targets within a 24-hour span. That's what they've been saying now for near on 30 days. You can do the math. An incredible number of strikes. These include what the IDF says overnight or key military compounds used for attacks. 
You can see here all the rockets that have already been launched pointing north into Israeli territory. This is the electricity, and this electricity runs all the way into this building that is actually a mosque from which the rocket launches are activated. And this is what's left of a refugee camp in northern Gaza following an intense night of Israeli strikes. So far, the IDF has not yet commented on this incident. But the Pentagon says the U.S. believes there are, quote, thousands of civilian casualties in Gaza. Nick Robertson is out front in Starot, Israel. And Nick, uh, you I know we're just hearing some loud explosions there, of course, uh, in the early hours of Tuesday morning now where you are. What's going on? Yeah, we're hearing fighter jets in the sky above us. We've seen flares dropped over Gaza City, heavy explosions there, flares dropped in the sky behind us not so long ago. Uh, some very heavy detonations there as well, some of them shaking this building. It's something uh, that has been a persistent part of the military action over the past couple of weeks. The IDF saying there was another couple of explosions there. The IDF saying that they've n captured 50, 50 Hamas rockets, have now taken control of a number of Hamas rockets rocket launch sites, some of them in children's play parks, uh, and also that they've cut off the north from the south of uh, Gaza in, uh, along the length of the Gaza Strip. They're operating a humanitarian corridor. The IDF keeps it open to allow for some hours of the day for civilians to move from the north of Gaza to the south of Gaza. But it's really what happens next around Gaza City. We're hearing the explosions, but are the troops going in on the ground? And how is, the, and how is Hamas dealing with that there's the concern about hamas creating kill zones where they can entrap the idf troops and rain fire on them um, we don't have visibility on that but we can hear the explosions Aaron. absolutely well the israeli prime minister netanyahu just spoke out about israel's plans for gaza uh, after the war if you can call it that given what he's saying what what exactly is he saying right now yeah, he's saying that after uh, the war is won against Hamas, and I think to be really frank about that, the jury's out if he can actually deliver on what he said he'll deliver, which is completely crushing Hamas, partly because the international clock on how much time he has is ticking down because the civilian casualties are so high. But he says that Israel would have to administer it and run it for a while. We've heard that a few weeks ago from, uh, from uh, other Israeli government ministers. I, I think one of the interesting things we've heard heard from Prime Minister Netanyahu this evening on this new interview is him saying, uh, when asked the question about would you have a ceasefire, his adamant, absolutely no ceasefire without the full release of hostages. But on this issue that the United States is pushing for, humanitarian pauses, he's saying, okay, well, tactical pauses, an hour or so, maybe we've had them before, we could look at that, maybe that could get some humanitarian aid in, maybe the odd hostage could be released. This is Netanyahu, it sounds like, softening his position. He's been hardline, no ceasefire. Now he's hinting maybe these short humanitarian or tactical pauses, call them what you will, um, this is a new position. Certainly is, although, as, as you point out, the context so crucial, Nick, right? 400, 450 airstrikes a day, never mind what's going on on the actual ground. You pause for an hour. Uh, the relief, of course, uh, would be minuscule in any, such, in any such development. Nick, thanks so much. Nick, of course, in Starot, where he has been for uh, the entirety of this war. Thousands of miles away, meantime, in Moscow, no one is watching Israel's war against Hamas more closely than the Russian President Vladimir Putin who is now trying to seize on the war 
to say that it is a battle between the United States and Israel versus the rest of the world. Fred Pleitkin is out front. As Israel's military continues its war against Hamas, Russian leader Vladimir Putin is framing the conflict as part of a global struggle of America and the West against the rest of the world. It's the current ruling elites of the United States and their satellites that are the main beneficiaries of global instability. They extract their blood toll from it. While many nations around the world condemned Hamas after the October 7th raid on southern Israel, killing more than 1,400 and taking hundreds of hostages, including Russians, Russia invited a high-level Hamas delegation to Moscow for meetings. A top Hamas leader saying the group would give preference to captives from what they call their, quote, Russian friends. This request from Russia we treat more positively and attentively than others due to the nature of our relations with Russia. So far, no Russian hostages appear to have been released. Still, Moscow not criticizing Hamas, instead ripping only into Israel for the many Palestinians killed by the IDF's ongoing aerial campaign in Gaza. Condemning terrorism, we categorically disagree that terrorism can be responded to by violating the norms of international humanitarian law, including the indiscriminate use of force against targets where the civilian population is known to be located. But for years, it was Russia that waged a relentless bombing campaign against areas held by rebels opposed to Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. The U.S. and various international aid groups accused Moscow of deliberately targeting civilian areas, including hospitals and markets, killing and wounding scores, even though the Kremlin has consistently denied those claims. And Russia's war against Ukraine continues, Moscow once again harming civilian structures overnight in the port town Odessa, wounding several people. Vladimir Putin, though, trying to argue that Russia is invading Ukraine to help the Palestinians. These are our soldiers and officers, and the choice of a real man, a real warrior, is to pick up arms and stand in line with his brothers, be in a place where the fate of Russia and of the whole world is being decided, including the future of the Palestinian people. Vladimir Putin there, Aaron, essentially trying to pit the entire rest of the world against the U.S. and its allies, including, of course, Israel as well. And this is not new from Vladimir Putin. Pretty much since he's invaded Ukraine, he's been speaking about wanting a new world order, as he puts it, one in which countries like China and Russia are much stronger and the U.S. is weakened. Aaron? Fred, thank you very much. And I want to go now to Barack Ravid, the Axios foreign policy reporter, longtime Israeli reporter as well. All right, Barack, great to speak with you. And obviously, you know, you hear Fred's reporting there and you've done extensive reporting on Putin and Russia's role here. What is Vladimir Putin doing here? Um, hi, Aaron. I think uh, what we see from Vladimir Putin since the beginning of this war is something that, at least from my point of view, was very uh, um, unusual because for more than a decade, Vladimir Putin tried to maintain a close relationship with Israel. And during this conflict, he just decided to throw Israel under the bus. And when you think about it, when you try and go like, you know, 30,000 feet up, 
you maybe know the reason why. Because if you look at this war, the, I think the person who um, gets the most out of this war is Vladimir Putin, where after the entire uh, world attention was on his uh, invasion to Ukraine, now the entire uh, attention of the international community is on the Middle East. And it gets, gets him a lot of uh, uh, air uh, to do things without anybody watching. And, and Fred showed that Moscow had invited top Hamas leaders to visit after the October 7th terror attacks, right? So they made a point, right? It's not just saying things between the lines. It's an invitation, come visit us. But, Brock, as you know, Hamas has been meeting with top Russian officials, including the foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov. This has been going on for years, including multiple times since Russia invaded Ukraine. So what do you think That's all for- this means? I mean, this is an investment over time. That's true. That's true. But, and it's a big but, Vladimir Putin for years, one of his pride was that he takes care of Russian-speaking people abroad. He still sees them as part of Russia in another part of the world. And Israel is a country where you have one million Russian-speaking people. And uh, uh, many of them were uh, harmed in the October 7th uh, attack. And Putin didn't seem to care. And I think that uh, the fact that they invited the Hamas delegation a few days later, I think that was a clear message on which side Putin is on. It's pretty incredible, though, the point that you point out, right? One million Russian speakers, and I think something many many may not realize uh, about about Israel. And, And some of them, by the way, some of them are hostages in Gaza right now. Right. Right, as he meets with Hamas. Um, In that context, uh, in this interview uh, that Prime Minister Netanyahu just gave to ABC News, he says, I think Israel will, for an indefinite period, have the overall security responsibility because we've seen what happens when we don't have it, referring to Gaza. Now, we know his ministers have said that he's intimated this before, Barack, but he puts the word indefinite on it. Um, What do you see here? I think that what we're going to see in Gaza is in many ways similar to what we see in the West Bank in the last 15 years. And this is that Israel keeps uh, uh, the overall security responsibility for itself coming every night into Palestinian cities to uh, arrest suspects of terror activity. Obviously, Gaza is not the West Bank. It's not going to be exactly the same. But I think that um, when it comes to uh, to the policy, Israel will try to uh, um, do the same thing it is doing in the West Bank. Now in Gaza, again, after this operation uh, will end, and who knows how long it is going to take. All right, Barack, thank you very much, as always, for your perspective. We appreciate it. Thank you. And next, that exclusive dispatch from journalist Ibrahim Dahman. His young sons, his wife, are finally out of Gaza, but the rest of his family is still in what he calls the Gaza graveyard. And a top aide, the commander of Ukraine's armed forces, killed by a grenade inside a present meant for his birthday. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts.
Breaking news as new explosions light up the sky in Gaza tonight. The death toll there is topping 10,000, according to Hamas-controlled Gazan health officials. CNN cannot independently verify those numbers, although sources at the Pentagon say that thousands of civilians have been killed in this war in Gaza. Along with the intense strikes, there have been long stretches of communication blackouts. And at this hour, we still cannot make connection with aid worker Mahmoud Shalabi. We've been talking to him almost daily inside Gaza. He remains there in northern Gaza at his home with his wife and three young children. We are, though, now hearing more from Ibrahim Dahman, the CNN journalist who was trapped in Gaza for 28 days. His family is now in Cairo, grateful to be out, but some of the horrors continue. في الشهر الماضي هربت أنا وعائلتي من شمال غزة تم قصف المباني أمام أعيننا لقد أصبحنا لاجئين في وطننا رأيت أفراد العائلة عالقين في مرمى النيران كان أطفالي يخافون على حياتهم لقد أوينا مع أكثر من 150 عائلة في خان يونس لقد شهدنا العديد من الغارات الجوية ونجونا من انقطاع التيار الكهربائي لقد حاولنا الاستفادة من الوضع السيء وصرف انتباه أطفالنا عما يحدث لكننا لم نتمكن من حمايتهم من الرعب يوم الجمعة الماضي طلب منا التوجه إلى معبر رفح لقد شعرت بالارتياح عندما خرجت من غزة فقد أصبحت كالمقبرة وفي رفح رأيت العديد من العائلات تأمل في الهروب تسرعت دقات قلبي عندما تم فحص أوراقنا وانت يا زيد ليه جاك تسافر انا بدي بدي مكان امن فيش شيء مكان امن تم استدعاء اسماء عدد قليل من المحظوظين للصعود الى الحافله المتوجهه الى مصر واخيرا جاء دورنا زوجتي وضعت وجهها الشجاع كلانا يشعر بالقلق من اننا لن نرى والدينا مره اخرى ابدا شعور التواجد في مصر لا يوصف مبسوطة خليل ايش بتقول وفي القاهرة لم نعد نسمع الغارات الجوية مكيف أبنائي يبدون سعداء لكنني أعلم أنهم مصابون بصدمة نفسية وفي بعض الأحيان يسمعون طائرة تحلق فوقهم ويعتقدون أنها طائرة حربية يجب أن أطمنهم أنهم آمنون الآن لا نعرف ما هي خطوتنا التالية في الوقت الحالي يمكننا أن نصبح عائلة عادية مرة أخرى And next, James Carville is speaking out tonight, even though his own party wants him to be quiet, and he'll tell you why. 
and a grenade and a birthday gift, killing a top aide to the commander of Ukraine's armed forces. What happened? Tonight, another high-profile Democrat saying Biden should step aside and let someone else run for president. I don't think President Biden should run. We have talent in the Democratic Party. Let new candidates emerge in the Democratic Party. That's from longtime Ohio Congressman Tim Ryan telling our Casey Hunt. His plea comes as new polling shows former President Trump beating Biden in five of six key swing states that were pivotal to Biden's 2020 election victory. Up front now, longtime Democratic strategist James Carville. So, James, some Democrats are pointing out, OK, OK, but... At this time in 2011, polls showed Obama likely losing his re-election. So they say, hold on, don't get so hot and bothered about this. So, James, can Biden still turn this around? I don't know. It's been the same poll for the last six months. All of a sudden, everybody got up this morning and had to, oh, my God, this is unchanged. And, and by the way, this didn't even include third parties. If I was a campaign manager and they handed this poll, I'd throw it back in their face. I mean, because the third parties or third, fourth, fifth parties are, are, are getting a lot of votes here. So I I don't quite know why we've had this OS reaction here it, because it's been this way since at least the spring of this year. The OS reaction. Um, and you're right. It has been um, consistent. So, James, is it too, too late for Democrats to find an alternative to Biden if they go down that route, as you said they should, as we just heard uh, Mr. Ryan saying they should? Well, I, you know, I don't know. I, people say to calendar this and it take I, I, who, who knows? But we've been denying this all summer. And people say, well, they don't say anything. They don't say anything. Well, this is the equivalent of going to the doctor. Don't tell a guy he's got high blood pressure. You're just going to upset him and make him worse. I mean, that that's the medical malpractice equivalent of acting like nothing is happening when clearly something is happening. So, and, and all of this, so, it, excuse me, Aaron, all of this is predicated on certainty. All the smart people, the chin scratches, the communists, the commentators say, look, it's going to be Trump and Biden. There's nothing you can do to stop that. And there's no there are no heart attacks. There are no strokes there are no memory lapses there are no convictions and no plea deals and no upsets and there are no third, fourth, fifth parties in the House of Strategic Certainty. I think it's idiotic, but that's me. So in a recent interview to The Atlantic. You said that when you tell other Democrats your honest analysis, and your honest analysis, of course, has been consistent that Biden is in serious trouble, they're essentially trying to silence you. So you said, quote, nobody's saying, James, you're wrong. They're saying, James, you can't say that. Um, <laughs> why do you think this is, James? I, I don't know, because I'm not the only guy in the world that reads polls. They come out, ABC, NBC, CNN, or it's all the same thing. And I'm not supposed to say what I see. And I just disagree with that. And we've had this summer and fall of silence. And all of a sudden, collectively, people wake up to something that's been going on for the last six months. I, and I think at some level, and I do too, people really like President Biden. They think he's a great guy. So I they think he's got a, he's not getting credit for enough record he has, so do I. But just it's just facts of political gravity here. Is uh, hopefully 
they can figure a way to turn somebody can turn this around, but I'm I'm getting more skeptical by the day. All right. Well, James, I appreciate your time and thank you very much for being with me tonight. Thank you. And next, we're going to tell you about how a birthday gift killed a top aide to Ukraine's top military commander. Tonight, a top aide to Ukraine's military chief killed after a grenade that was inside a birthday present exploded. Ukraine's top military commander, Valery Zhaluzhny, who you're seeing on your screen now, announcing the death of his close friend, Major uh, Gennady Chashchikov. Now, Ukrainian news outlet, Ukrainska Pravda, posted these photos, which appear to show what, what looked to be several grenades and the debris left behind by the explosion. Now, Ukraine's interior minister says that Chashchikov received a birthday gift from a colleague, from a known person. And Kyiv police say that Chashchikov's 13-year-old son was helping him open the gifts, was seriously injured. I mean, look, this is a tragic story, but it's also deeply unsettling for Ukraine to see a top aide to its top commander of this entire war killed like this. Police saying tonight that they have launched a criminal investigation, uh, but obviously we don't yet know the details to know whether the word assassination or what would be appropriate, uh, but they have launched a criminal investigation. All right, thank you so much for joining us. It's time now for AC360. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.